Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the we're back! Hey! Welcome to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation! With? And? And Bob! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're here at uh, BZ and uh, we just wrapped up the story, of course. Everybody's gone, so Ann and I are here. A little tired. Being and exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> and we uh, put together a show for you guys to see what uh, Spirit Quest is all about. And we're, we're really excited. Oh, it was uh, such a good weekend. Yeah, it was. And actually, all right, I have to stop right there because Ann and I, a couple funny things happened. First one was Saturday morning or Saturday night, whatever. Saturday morning. Saturday morning. Yeah. Ann says what? Ron, I got a text from you. What was First it? of all, I looked at my phone and I saw a text from Van Helsing because that's literally how he is in my phone. So I'm like, Ron doesn't text. That's true. So all it said was A. That's it. That was the whole sum total of the text message. And of course, me being me, I texted back. Are you trying to text me? Did you want something? And me being me, who don't look at my Texas, I didn't <laughs> an answer because I don't text. Yeah. But the, the thing about it that I found fascinating is that, you know, people say, oh, you butt text. It's like, I don't see how I can do it because to do it on my phone, you, you've got to go through like four or five steps. And uh, then you got to put the A in too, like, you know, the, and send. So think about all what it has to be pressed. It's a number, because he does not have an iPhone. Mm -hmm. Oh, hell no. You would just hit text and start typing. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, mine's uh, Andrew. So, uh, it, you know, I, I it couldn't believe it. So I, you know, somebody said, oh, well, it's Anne's on your last person who calls you. It's an iMac text. They talk about you can do that with only like one to still. Even one or two, you gotta think how many times that buttons I have to push to send it. So, anyways, I looked at the last person that called and that wasn't in, so I don't know. And then we're sitting here setting up. What happened here? Oh, right now. Oh, right now. We're setting up the camera to do our bit. And all of a sudden we hear paper towel dispenser in the bathroom, which is literally right behind us. Spits out a whole bunch of paper towel. <laughs> it's motion. Okay. It's what it was motion was. Yes, yeah, nobody here. Yeah, there's nobody here. It's just the end of the night. Just us. And the ghosts, of course. And the ghosts of DC. <laughs> so, anyway, that's our story. And we are so glad to uh, see you again. And hope you're glad to see us again. I hope so. So, we also had uh, a ton of other events. Uh, Anne and I did, of course, uh, tribute to die for. Oh, yes. <laughs> Friday night. Yeah, which is fine, Chinese food and uh, costume, uh, a fancy dress, as we like to call it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fancy dress. Homeworld. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah. 
So it was fine. And we did, uh, today, this is Sunday, we finished up with uh, Spirit uh, Boys or uh, Ouija Boys. Mm -hmm. We did that. And I got to play the first, uh, my first attempt at a body keyboard, which was really fun. The Barbie board? Barbie board. Barbie board. Oh, I, I, I've owned this board for a long, long, long time. And uh, somebody told me it was worth, you know, several hundred dollars. Really? Yeah. Uh, but I think Sue Brown looked it up. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I always wanted to play it, but I never did. And I played with Little Eden. And, uh, yeah, it was fun. Uh, you know, even her mother was there and made fun of the cards because there were little cards that come with it. <laughs> and believe it or not, the cards actually were good. <laughs> they did. It was really funny. You, you know, it's got a little footage of that too. Do you really? I did. You know what the interesting thing about it in the end is that when people do the Ouija board or they do uh, EVPs, a lot of times they sit there and you know can't think of a question to ask. Mm -hmm. So with the cards, it made it easy. This was the question you were asked. They were, you didn't have to do That's that true. thinking. So that was kind of fun. That's true. Yeah. It does make it easier. Yeah. We had some great lectures. I always do that with EVPs. Yeah. Okay, ask the question. Um, uh. <laughs> we have a standard list, actually, in EGP. Oh, really? Yeah, standard <laughs> list, so there's no hesitation. We know what we're looking for. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a good idea. Yeah. yeah. So it goes through, and it's, it's genetic, so it fits everything. Now, we still ask other questions if we're on a particular subject that works. Mm -hmm. But uh, we have some great presenters. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. very nice. Stephen Scott zoomed in today from uh, Scotland, did a nice presentation on Scottish, Scottish ghosts. Scottish ghosts. Yeah. He's great. I love him. He's the best storyteller. Oh, God, yeah. He's wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful storyteller. And uh, last week, we, I mean, yesterday, Saturday, we had three, six workshops and events, which was great. Yeah, two in the morning and four in the afternoon, something like that, right? Yeah. Right. We, we had uh, working with crystals. Mm -hmm. We had Roxy Zwicker. Oh, Roxy Zwicker, how can I forget that? Yeah. And she was working with uh, oh, wonderful. one of her spirits, uh, uh, what was her name, Elizabeth? Elizabeth. And then uh, for lunch, we, we had uh, Barbara Sillery. Yeah, Sillery. Yes. From the Cape. And, wonderful. Uh, a haunted Cape shipwrecks and pirates. And uh, then, then Thomas Dagostino and yes. abandoned towns and stuff, which was cool. And then uh, Bigfoot. 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 With the actual cast of Bigfoot. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was it. And we wrapped it up with Marvin's psychic detective workshop. Yeah, that was Our cool. Old. That's always really intriguing because they're literal cases. Yeah. Cold cases. They're fun to do. Yeah. And then we wrapped up the, well, we didn't wrap up the week and Saturday night. We did it had, and you got three events, which is kind of cool. And it's not like you had to pick and choose, you get to do all three. Right. We had Ian's wonderful piano um, room. We had this glass rolling workshop that people absolutely loved because I had created a new table for it. Very cool. And then we did a place that we'd never been investigated before. We got to go over there and take other than us, but uh, he took a spin through there and did a little investigating. So that was, was a really good weekend. Everybody really enjoyed it. Very good. Yeah. Nice work. Mm -hmm. This is Kendall. She's r and Traders in Newburyport. Correct. And she has a storefront uh, with tons of cool stuff, weird stuff in it, really weird. 
Yeah, they're called crystals. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's not a black and white area. It's gray. Everybody's different. So what might work for her because they told them on Instagram or TikTok or one of those YouTubers, do this, do that. That doesn't necessarily work for everybody else. So what I like to do is teach you how to incorporate crystals and pick your own crystals. Your body will tell you. That's when we're going to do the interaction with each other and you're going to learn how things make you feel. I still don't feel the crystal, but they all scientifically have different energy points. And I think that's what we have to turn on, and that's what Maureen helped me with, was most of it's done through meditation. And a lot of people, if you just stood still for a minute and just felt, just felt, like what's happening to my skin. You'll feel tingles if you just find your baseline. And that's what I have everyone do is just relax for a minute and then we'll, we'll go through together as teams or threes. I don't know how many we have in here. Um, how to pick your crystal. We typically look at emotional areas like anxiety, stress. Maybe it's relationships. with. It could, when I say relationships, it doesn't mean Valentine's Day hearts. I'm talking it could be with siblings, family members, work, coworkers. You know, things like anger management fall in there. Um, those are kind of the negatives, but there are positives too. Um, the other is um, like spiritual, meaning you're moved, you've moved to that stage where you want to hit the mediumship, you want to do more work with your ghost hunting, all those things, how to develop those chakras. Now, they'll talk a lot about chakras. And I gave you a, the basic seven on the back, and they're color-coded. The problem is a lot of stones fall into chakras and they do not match those colors. Um, that's why I kind of left it blank. So you could put in there if something happened to work for you in here that didn't really wasn't, weren't looking at that root chakra, but it, you felt something. Sometimes we're, we think a problem is one thing and it's something else. You know, that's just the symptom, not what's causing the issue, which also falls into the health area. A lot of people come in the store and they say, I want to get something for a friend, usually when it's health. Seldom is it for themselves. They want to, my friend's fighting cancer. And I literally go to what type of cancer? Do I know that off the top of my head? Absolutely not. I have to Google and research just like everyone else. And when you do that, I just would say, sit with it. See if that feels right, sounds right. Because a lot of times they say, oh, you need this. And people come in the shop and say, they told me I need this. And I go, who? And they hold up their phone. And it's something that they Googled or, or it's come up. And I always tell them, look, people are trying to sell you stuff there too. In my shop, my rule of thumb is um, I'm not juicing people. When they're actually coming for help, I'm like, if I can fix that for a buck or two, um, would that be good for you? And they just look at me. They're just so used to people hitting them with hundreds of dollars um, to teach them how to help themselves. Now, if you want to buy that big, gorgeous, beautiful thing, please, by all means, do so. Because that's how I make a living. But when it comes to helping people, I go, I go small. I don't, I don't want to overwhelm people. I also believe you shouldn't just buy a whole bunch of stuff. Because then you have no idea which stone is doing what. Try working with one stone at a time. And kind of, if you can't remember it, journal it. Remember what happened. Um, cleansing and charging. I'm not going to lie. 
not my game. These are rocks. They came from the center of the earth. And they're rituals. Now, rituals, I just make up my own. But there are rituals you can do if you like. Have a good time. Dabbling. If that brings you closer to your spirituality in that zone or what you want to do, by all means, go in the moon, go in the sun, do whatever makes you feel good because you're actually kind of meditating through that, which is self-discovery and what you want to feel. Um, so there's a list there of different ones. I will say I've been working with Christy, who has the grids out there. They're in my shop as well. And I keep selenite. Like, I have a box of my favorites in my room. And I keep a piece of selenite in there. Selenite's a salt-based rock. It's a cleansing. Like On here, you'll see a lot about salt water or seawater. Selenite's a salt-based rock. So I'm like, hey, just put it on that. Put it in the windowsill. It's golden. Or put it in a box. Sometimes you might put a stick of sage in there. You don't necessarily have to burn this much. You can just put the materials together. But I put some options there. If you want to try any of that, see if it makes a difference. I find for me personally, it doesn't make a difference. I can just say, forget what you know, start over <laughs> in my own mind. <laughs> you know, that's just me. But I totally understand the ritual. Yes. So without further ado, let me introduce you, Roxy Swicka. Oh my gosh, um, I am so excited to take a deeper dive into um, one of the stories that um, you really can't even define. Um, it's, it's really difficult to explain that I work with somebody from the 1700s um, trying to heal people's lives. And um, all that I ask is you have an open mind. Obviously, you're here, so there is some sort of open-mindedness involved. So I'm going to um, bring you to Portsmouth of Yore. So um, I'm down from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Like I said, I've been doing tours there for a really long time. Um, one of the favorite places that I discovered and remains one of my favorite places in New England is the Point of Grave Cemetery. The cemetery is the oldest in the state of New Hampshire. Officially, the date there is 1672, although Barris took place there as early as the 1650s. So we're in the um, we're in Portsmouth's south end, and you can see it's actually not a very large burial ground, but it is full of so many amazing stories. And I've always found myself spending time in here, not even on a tour, not even exploring, but just sitting and being. And I think sometimes when we're in places that have you know hauntings or ghost stories or spirited activity, sometimes it's just nice just to sit, not to bring any equipment, not to take any pictures just to sit and take it all in. So one day, I'm in the point of graves, just wandering around. Um, my husband was with me as well. And as I'm walking around, I'm just taking a few pictures of the gravestones. I walked over to one particular stone that I found to be quite fascinating and took a few pictures of this stone, started to walk away. And as I was walking away, all of a sudden, I felt a hand on my shoulder. It was as if I had my back turned and someone was reaching out to call me to come back. So I turned around and I looked and the trees that were there at the time were too tall. I was too short. So I was like, it's not a tree branch. There was nobody around me in that immediate area. So um, the amazing Ken was over by the cemetery gate. Now, I've been into this for my entire life. I've you know, always loved ghost stories, always asked about haunted places since I was a kid. However, I will confess, I was a little bit spooked. So I yelled over to Ken and I said, 
Honey, something just touched me. So he looks down and looks around me and he says, yeah, I don't see anybody down there with you. So, uh, so your, your brave tour guide, who's, as Ron said, written a lot of books and does all these tours, ran out of the cemetery that day. It was broad daylight. And I ran onto the sidewalk and I stood there, looked across the street at the burial ground, and I said to Ken, I said, there's something in there. And of course, Ken says, yeah, Roxy, you do tours of the cemetery and you tell people it's haunted. And I was like, yeah, but I didn't expect anything to ever happen to me while I was in there. Now, at the time, I didn't know the story of this person. And I was like, you know, why did that happen in broad daylight? And why did it happen when I was walking away? So I decided to do a little bit of research on um, Elizabeth Pierce. So you can see she has a beautiful gravestone. It has the death's head on it. On top of the skull is the hourglass, and it's perched there to remind you of the delicate balance between life and death. You'll also notice at the bottom of the hourglass, and I have all of other pictures of this that you can see as well, all of the sands are chipped out at the bottom to show you that time has run out. So um, she was 42 when she died, January 13, 1717. So a little bit of that information was pretty easy to find. And I figured, all right, so you know maybe there's, there's something going on here at this particular grave that I need to pay attention to. So it just so happens that we were in the burial ground um, one evening and I started to notice all of these strange stories kept happening over and over again in their own very unique way. So um, a friend of mine, uh, Susan Spooler, who's president of the Massachusetts Dowsing Society, I talked to her about the incident that had happened with me. And she said, well, have you ever tried to talk to Elizabeth? And I said, um, no. She said, let's go up. She actually lives in this area. She says, I'll bring you some dowsing rods. And these are my dowsing rods that she gave me. And she said, let's see if we can talk to Elizabeth and see if she has anything to say. So with the dowsing rods, we were able to do yes and no. We were able to determine direction. We were able to ask multiple choice questions. Some of the first things that we were able to sort of define was that Elizabeth was very talkative. In fact, as soon as we started using the rods, the rods seemed to just go off on their own. Um, she wasn't interested in crossing over. She wasn't looking for the light. And that's never really been my approach with spirits. You know, you got to go right to the light. We know you're stuck here type of thing. Like, that's, that's not what I do. I try to understand what's going on and certainly trying to understand why Elizabeth was reaching out towards us. So I decided that the approach when we came into the burial ground would be not just to talk to Elizabeth, but to ask Elizabeth who our group walked in with. So who the spirits were that were wandering around with the people that were coming in with us. Because I'm a firm believer that we all have spirits with us. Um, sort of call it our spiritual support team, guides, guardians, and ancestors. So a lot of people who come on the tours are sometimes really surprised uh, because they think they're going to hear a ghost story. And then when I turn around and tell them, well, you have a spirit that's with you. Elizabeth is telling us this. Um, it really does sort of put this, uh, this interesting twist in the tour. Um, and what I find to be particularly interesting is people that come on the tours and they bring their cameras and they say, oh, you know, I watch Ghost Hunters, I watch Most Haunted, I brought my camera, how many pictures of ghosts am I going to get? Then when I turn around and say, so your grandma's with you, this is what Elizabeth said, they're like, no, 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 I'm good, I don't want to know about any ghosts that are with me. 
And I'm like, really, there's no difference. So we're finishing up a tour one evening here. And there are so many stories here that sometimes I leave some out because we only have so much time in the burial ground. So it's interesting to see which ones sort of come to me while we're walking around. However, this particular evening, there's a story I had left out. And there was a lovely woman who had come alone on the tour. And as we were finishing up and we walked over to the gate, she really surprised me when she said, so, she says, there's another story she said that you didn't tell us. And I said, really? I said, have you been on this tour before? She says, no. I said, so what story didn't I tell you? She says, you didn't tell us about the little girl that's in here. And I said, no, I actually didn't. I said, so where did you see this little girl? And she actually pointed to this area of the burial ground, which is um, a little bit to the right as you're going into the burial ground. Elizabeth is to the left. She says, she's right over here. She says, in fact, I saw her peeking at us from behind one of the gravestones. And again, it was sort of this dusky time of day. And I looked, and I didn't see anybody. And I said, well, I says, there is a story of a little girl in here. I says, it's actually, I says, it's really sad. I said, and I, you know, sometimes feel that maybe it's just best left unsaid. And she's like, oh, no, I need to know that story. And I wondered why. Like, there was something in her demeanor and something in her speech that seemed very urgent. So I had told her that back in 1930s, there was a story of a young girl who was walking through the neighborhood. She was walking home from school. And again, this was back when it was all wharf houses. As she was walking home, she met a schoolmate. And he made it home, and she didn't. A couple of days went by, and they were searching for her, wondering, did she get lost? Was she at a friend's house? And they actually found her dead behind one of the wharf houses. And she had been murdered. And the gentleman that, the young man that was with her, um, had actually been down from Portland, Maine. And the reason why he had come down from Portland is because he was starting fires up in Portland. And he said the Native Americans told him to do this. So when he was questioned about walking home with this girl, again, he said that he had visions of these Native Americans. And what I find to be completely stunning is no one was ever held accountable for her death. It is sort of an unsolved murder today. And his mother took him from town. They ended up going to Connecticut. And there is some belief that he had some involvement with the Great Hartford Circus Fire. Uh, he spent the rest of his life in um, an asylum in Ohio. So there was that story, and I said, every once in a while, someone does report seeing this little girl in here. And she said, well, I'm glad you told me that story. And then this is where you're going to see a lot of these stories start to take a turn. She says, I have to tell you that she can't come home with us. And I, I said, okay. I says, us. She says, yeah. She says, because my daughter died when she was five. And she says she constantly picks up on spirits all the time. Again, she's there by herself, not knowing her story. She said, I can tell they're playing. She says, and she can't come home with us. Um, not something that I'm used to hearing um, at you know, any tour or event. But she's like, I'm not going to leave, she says, until you tell her to go. I said, OK. So from talking to Elizabeth, again, Elizabeth is sort of my go-to spirit that's here. I took out the rods, and I asked Elizabeth where the girl was, and the rods pointed to where the girl was, and the mom said, she's standing right here with my daughter. And I said to Elizabeth, I said, Elizabeth, you have to take her back into the burial ground. She can't go home with this woman. And you could see this woman was getting more upset by the moment. And she, she's like, I can't have her come home with my daughter. I'm tired of her picking up spirits. And I, I asked her, I said, have you ever really talked to her about this? And she says, no, she knows how I feel. 
So I didn't want to pursue it too much because I could see she was getting emotional. So I asked Elizabeth, can you please walk her over to where your grave is from where we were here? And you could see the rods were just following Elizabeth back. So I followed back over. I went with the mom. We stood there. I said, I think she's going to need to be bid farewell so that way she stays here with Elizabeth. And I asked Elizabeth to look out for her. And again, this, this sounds like it's way off you know, the map for ghostly things that are going on, but this is sort of par for the course with what we experience in there. So it took a moment, and the mom turned around, and she said, she's gone. And the rod stopped working. I could tell Elizabeth had taken her sort of away from where we were. We used the rods to go back to the gate. I said, I'm just going to make sure that there's no one there. I asked for the rods to stay open as we made our way back to the gate. Mom was okay. She felt a sense of relief. I actually walked out of the burial ground across the street onto that same sidewalk that I ran that day. And she thanked me. And she said she's trying to find a way to work with her daughter, but her daughter was always just so friendly both in life and in death. She said it's not uncommon for her to be talking to spirits on the other side, and she picks up on that. So um, not only was I stunned, um, I was also saddened. So a lot of what I experienced with Elizabeth is sort of this roller coaster um, of emotions and this roller coaster of unexpected things. Uh, we're, we're very proud to present someone who came all the way from the Cape, right? Mm -hmm. Where in the Cape? Uh, Falmouth. Falmouth, all the way from Falmouth up here. Uh, it's just to present, so uh, let's give a good pause for Barbara Sillery. Sillery who's written a bunch of books. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. Um, again, my name is Barbara Sillery. I am a television producer. I also am a writer, director, and I'm an author of nine books, seven of which are all about delving into the history and the mystery behind haunted tales. And before I get started, come on in. I do have a confession to make, and that is, I am a ghost snob. <laughs> That's what I said, I am a ghost snob. And I have a very, I think, valid reason for needing all of my ghosts to have a pedigree. And it all goes back to when I did a one-hour documentary for PBS called The Haunting of Louisiana. And I wanted to include ghost stories from throughout the state in this one-hour documentary. And I wanted to include ghosts from plantations. And there's a saying in Louisiana that every old plantation has to have at least one ghost or hang its head in shame. <laughs> so I had all those ghosts. And then, of course, I was going to include New Orleans, Ghost Central USA. So my issue simply was, I had too many ghost stories to fit into a one-hour PBS documentary because the PBS documentary actually is only 56 minutes and 40 seconds. So I had to develop a criteria to narrow the field. And what I did was, number one, I said for a ghost to be in my documentary, it had to be connected or based on a real person. And then my second criteria was that this story had to be connected to a historic site. And my third criteria was that the story itself had to have been circulating in the community for at least 
100 years or so because I wanted to be able to do the research. I don't do urban legends, for example, because there's not a lot there for me to work with. So I found that this using these guidelines worked really well for the documentary, and I wound up using these guidelines for all of my books. Now we're going to go down along the Massachusetts coast, and there is a sea chanty out there that says, there are three kinds of people in this world, those who are alive, those who are dead, and those who are at sea. So young Caleb Hamlin was on the whaleboat Congress, and he stood poised in hand, ready to deal a fatal blow to a whale. But the whale turned abruptly and struck the boat, and Caleb's feet were tangled in the line, he was yanked overboard, he was plummeted some 50 feet into the turbulent waters in Australia. Genealogist Henry Drew wrote about this, and this is a quote from him. On May 12, 1858, three boats made fast to a whale. The whale fought, knocking the captain and another mate overboard, then attacked the boat, opening and closing its 22-foot-long jaws with great force. The whale struck the boat and threw Caleb astride its lower jaw with its leg caught in the corner of its mouth. It then dove into the sea. Andrews concluded this whopper of a tale with a harrowing twist. Retaining his presence of mind, Caleb clung to the line, made fast to the boat, was literally torn out of the whale's mouth. He was taken into the boat in time to deal a death blow with his lance to the whale. Kind of a real whopper of a tale there. But this escaping the jaws of a whale was not Caleb's only brush with death at sea. In 1853, off the Crozai Islands, he was again harpooning a large whale. It slammed into the boat. He threw him overboard. He scrambled back in. The whale was captured. One year later, in 1854, off the Desolation Islands, the boat made fast to a large whale when a second whale came up under the boat and sent all six crew into the sea, into the air, and then into the sea. Four of the crew managed to climb back in, but one could not swim. Caleb was an excellent swimmer, so he dove in and pulled the man out by his hair. On subsequent voyages, Captain Caleb's ship was driven into the rocks off New Zealand, struck ice off the Arctic Ocean, and was hit by a hurricane off Patagonia. So it comes as no surprise that Captain Caleb's ghost is also a survivor. Caleb died at home, a landlubber, at the age of 72. And his ghost, they say, can be spotted fading in and out of his former home near the West Falmouth Library. The fact that the home is now condos does not seem to affect his spirit because he can be seen, or his spirit can be seen, hanging out on the front porch, feet planted in a wide stance as he would on the deck of a ship. He seems to be surveying the changing world around him. Caleb was buried, uh, died actually on April 17, 1907. He's buried in Oak Grove Cemetery, and visitors to this cemetery swear that they see and have seen on various occasions a pale gentleman formally attired in a dress coat and white bow tie, and that he is inspecting the marble pillar that serves as his family monument. The phantom gentleman vanishes as soon as he feels eyes on him, and those who manage to catch a glimpse of Caleb 
recognize him by his trademark mustache. This is a story about a little girl ghost who likes to come out and play. So before I tell her story, I want to ask, are there any collectors in the room? Any of you collect small things, large things, one in the back, see another person? Well, then I think maybe you'll kind of understand Simmons Homestead. I'd like to introduce you to Bill Putnam. Bill likes stuff. He collects cars. He has, last count, about 58 of them. They're all red. They're all sports cars. He also collects malt scotch whiskey. He has about 600 varieties, I guess, so he'll never run out. But the strangest things to most people that Bill collects are, you ready for this? He collects cats. He has about 30 of them right now. They're all yellow tabbies. They're all rescue cats. And he wants them to feel like they're each the alpha cat. So he wants all their names to begin with the letter A. And the name he likes to use the most is Abigail. So if you're wandering the grounds at the Simmons Homestead in Hyannis, you can often encounter, but can't tell them apart, Abigail 1, Abigail 2, Abigail 3, etc. Now, Bill has never met a space he couldn't fill. His charming bed and breakfast has theme rooms. There is the rabbit hutch room, the fish and aquarium room, the Cape Cod critters room, you get the idea. And despite his passion for collecting, Bill has only one ghost. He had never seen a ghost prior to buying this house. And when I met up with Bill, I never write about a site unless I make a personal visit and I talk to the owner, I talk to the docents, I talk to the visitors. So I try and get as many different viewpoints as possible. So I met up with Bill, and this is what he said to me. I bought the Simmons Homestead in 1988. I did not believe in ghosts. I had never seen a ghost until I came here. And during the restoration, I was alone in the house. I was painting the walls, and I began to see something out of the corner of my eye. I could hear a giggle. I could see a little girl duck around. She had brown hair, an old-fashioned dress. She was about four feet tall. I never experienced seeing a ghostly figure like that. And Bill kind of tried to shrug off the encounter. And he said to me, I guess she was checking to see I wasn't screwing up her daddy's house. Now, Susan's daddy was sea captain Lemuel Baker, and he owned a house that was built by his father in 1810. Susan lived here with her eight brothers and sisters, and one warm day, she slipped outside. She wandered down to the pond in the back. Poor Susan couldn't swim. She drowned. So I'm going to show you this aerial photograph of the Simmons homestead. There's the Simmons homestead. There's the pond in the back where Susan drowned. And while it is a very sad story, it does have an upside. And the upside is that little Susan's spirit seemingly has returned to her childhood home. Now, Bill believes that what he calls the owl room was once Susan's bedroom. And female guests, Susan apparently only appears to females, sorry guys, 
And they say that when they leave the room to go downstairs to breakfast and they come back, they find their makeup scattered all around the room and they believe that this is Susan playing. <coughs> Susan also likes to play in the attic bedroom. Now, Bill is very aware of the sensitivities, the potential allergies of his guests, not to his ghost, but to his cats. So, what he has done is inside the front door, he has a very large sign. And the sign reads, don't let Abigail in, and don't let Susan out. For he can't have Susan wandering outside again. And he said to me, we love and enjoy Susan. After all, this was her house long before it was ours. I'd like to introduce to you someone who you've known before and has written also a ton of books. Uh, he's been a good friend of mine, even though he steals the name of my dining room. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was me. I take now, responsibility. You know what? In all, all fairness, Tom actually called me and asked me about it. So he said, do you mind if I use your name Diamond a bit? I smell you down wherever the hell, Hell's Kitchen or wherever it is. Yeah, <laughs> way down south. Yeah, down south. All you southerners. Anyways, so I said, no, no problem also. I always appreciated that. Him and uh, Richard Felix were the only two that asked because I had run that for years and years before. So that I do appreciate. Yes. Anyways, he is a, he's a good guy. He's also a, a kick-ass guitar player as well. Glad to be here. And, um, Welcome. I'm going to talk a little about abandoned villages and ghost towns of New England. Now, a long time ago, we actually, Arlene and I, uh, her mostly lived in the edge of an abandoned village. And we're going to be talking a little about that today. New England is full of abandoned villages and ghost towns, really full of them. And there are just countless um, in every single state. Um, the ones I'm going to present today are examples, uh, basically, of people who tried to build a better life, a better world, but failed, got a, uh, some reasons they were abandoned through uh, hardships and difficulties. Others, they were taken over by municipalities to create things such as watersheds. And um, a lot of people don't know this, but the flood of 1955 created a need for us to have a watersheds right through New England. Cut, so they cut two swaths straight down from Maine all the way to Long Island Sound and any, to, for runoff for, uh, in case the floods of 55 should ever happen again. And uh, what happened was anything in the way was gone. Okay, when they decided to do that, the Army Corps of Engineers, some were turned into reservoirs, which you're going to see here. Um, I'm going to start with one of our favorites, Dogtown. Uh, how many people have been to Dogtown? All right, cool place, huh? How many people never heard of it? Dogtown Common. It was called the Common, actually. It's known for um, many legends of witches and ghosts and dogs and werewolves and pirates. And it basically, it was settled around 1643. It was originally called the Common Settlement. What happened, it was settled because uh, they were afraid of the coastal area, the, the richer people living around the coast and commerce uh, were afraid of pirates and whatnot, and so they built their houses up in this plateau in the middle of Cape Ann. So if you go to Cape Ann, Dogtown, if you look on old maps, you may see, you may see it, believe it or not, it's not mentioned very much in a lot, even Roger Babson's 
family doesn't mention it in their writing on the history of Cape Ann. But it existed there. As much as 80 families lived there, which is pretty darn big, you got to admit, um, for a, a town back then. And until about 1750, it started going downhill. But uh, this place, what happened was these people would go there, they lived there, and then um, a lot of them were merchants, so they'd go out to sea. And when they'd go out to sea, maybe they wouldn't come back, leaving the wives as widows. Now, houses are empty, people are moving out, leaving, and, and these houses, who's going to fill them, right? Well, squatters, fortune tellers, they call them, witches, uh, you know, the, the lesser of, of the society. And so these people, the, the widows started getting dogs for protection, out of fear. Well, when they die off, what happens to the dogs? Well, the dogs would run rampant all over the place. And that's where it got the nickname Dogtown. Now, one of the things about the coolest thing about this was <clears throat> one of the last people to be pulled from Dogtown, the last people were um, pulled into the, put into the poorhouse because the place was in such bad condition. People like Judy Rhines, Mal Jacob, Lisa Carter, Old Root. Now, this is great. Judy Rhines, Mal Jacob were witches. <clears throat> they were known as witches. They would tell fortunes. In fact, um, they would go from home to home as each home just fell in to the cellar hole. They'd go find another one in a dog town that was inhabitable. And um, they said that uh, several people, like the sea captains and the, and the sailors, would go up there to have their fortunes told by Judy Ryan and Mal Jacob and, and Peg Wesson. And they would actually, uh, some of them would never show up again. Where did they go? Well, we don't know, but I'm sure Judy Rhines and Mal Jacobs did. Easter Carter, she was had the only two-story house in Dogtown. She was a she used to fancy having the young people come over for her her cabbage. She said, "I eat no trash." She'd have a boiled cabbage dinner. That was her big main dish. Um, Sammy Stanley was kind of funny because he was he was uh, he lived with his aunt. In his, uh, in his, um, <clears throat> excuse me, his aunt and his grandmother, and he was dressed as a woman because they wanted a woman around the house. So he dressed as a woman and he go out and do chores as a woman. And um, later on, after they passed away, he actually put, bought stock in a mill and dressed like a man finally. But when he was, a, you know, old enough to, and, but yet, old Ruth was a freed mulatto slave who dressed as a man and built stone walls. She could build a stone wall better than all of us put together today. <laughs> and uh, she lived on the second floor of East Dakota. Aunt Luce George and Tammy Younger, they were the, really the head witches of, of Dogtown. They had a house right at the edge of Dogtown coming over the bridge. And you had to pass through Dogtown to get from one end of Cape Ann to the other. There was no other way through. So if you wanted to get to Rockport, you had to pass through Dogtown, you had to pass by their house. She had a little door. She'd open the door, and she'd see a cart coming, and she'd run out there, and she'd give it the evil eye. And the ox would actually stand still with their tongues hanging out until the person who was in charge of that cart gave her a bounty of what was on the cart. She'd come out, and she'd start screaming her vocal pyrotechnics at them, and um, she was a very heavy woman. In fact, when Tammy Younger died, um, John Hodgkins was in charge of running... The, he was the cabinet maker. So he was in charge of running the whole funeral things, including building the coffin. 
Well, when she, he finished the cloth and he put it in his kitchen and uh, it was pouring, raining out and he had beeswax, a beautiful coffin. But they said that she was already in it, the family, and they would not allow the coffin to stay in the house. So he had to bring it outside. Uh, so they buried her uh, with a full burial with a plaque and everything because they were so afraid of her coming back. Well, another thing that had happened here is uh, <clears throat> Johnny Morgan Stanwood was the cobbler. He worked at a place called the Boo. Later on in life, he thought his legs were made of glass, uh, so he refused to walk. But Tammy Young had two teeth that she had, she wanted taken out, her two front incisors. So what he did, being the joke she was, he pulled one halfway out, he goes, I can't get it anymore. Let me try the other one. And he pulled that one halfway out, and he goes, they won't come anymore. And Kanazi had these big walrus fangs. <laughs> And he let it go like that for a while until he finally said, I'll, I'll, I'll get them. <laughs> but uh, he, he also got a shower pyrotechnics, uh, vocal pyrotechnics. Peg Wesson was said to actually ride a broom, and she was the queen of the witches of Dogtown. Now, um, in Lewisburg, for, um, the uh, battle over there, where the Canada, there was two people from the area who had gone there, and they were heckling Peg Wesson before they left, the two soldiers. And one day they were there outside the fort and hundreds of miles away, and all of a sudden this crow starts diving at them. And it's diving at them, and they're trying to shoot, but it keeps coming back. Finally, one of the guys takes a shot at it, and he swears he hits it, but it just keeps stacking at him. The other guy pulls out a, a silver button off his jacket, loads it into the musket, shoots it, hits the crow in the foot. The, you know, breaks its leg. The crow kind of flies away limping. They get back from their tour, and they find out that Peg Wesson had died because she fell and broke her leg, and it got infected. So they knew it was Peg Wesson. Um, Isaac Dade and Peter Lurvey. Peter Lurvey was the first casualty of the revolution in that area when uh, the ship, the Falcon, came uh, to raid that area of Cape Ann. Him and a bunch of guys got their guns and started going after the Falcon. Um, <clears throat> The Falcon started shooting at, at, on shore, and Peter Lurvey was killed along with one of the Reverend's pigs. <laughs> Isaac Dade was a gunner on the Constitution. James Mary used to do bullfighting there. He, would, he wanted to be a bullfighter, so he used to get gather people together in the common, Dogtown Common, and he'd um, do bullfighting. One time, the bull got the better of him, and uh, that was the end of that. <laughs> But there's a marker, a plaque. This is the, what the happened. Roger Babson saved this from being destroyed by buying the whole inside of Cape Ann. And then he hired stonecutters to um, cut uh, things, in the, like sayings in the rocks and everything. And, uh, and uh, this one right here is where Dorktown Square was. Um, then he also had all the houses where they were. He had them found in every house where it was. And he, Put number of them, and then he made a tour guide, and you could walk through there, and you could see who lived where, and a little story about each person. Now people still swear that they hear the howling of the dogs at night and the whispering of voices and things like that. Um, this was a typical Dogtown home, so they weren't like too much like shacks. And this is a map of Dogtown. You can actually walk the trails to this day. And it's a long walk if you can get lost. Luckily, Arlene and I know our way around. When we went with old Jeff Belanger and, and Ron, <laughs> um, did you join us on that one, or was it just your father, Ron? Just. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, that was the one where we stopped at the Rock beyond time because he was 45 minutes late. It was one of the sayings in the Rocks. They had all the Rocks in, um, uh, what does it work, um, never complain, and this and that. Like there's 22 of them on the Babson Boulder Trail, giant boulders in some cases. So the place you can still walk to is still haunted. It's an amazing place. It's probably one of the most amazing villages we've ever been to. So let me introduce to you someone who I've never met before. Uh, Crystal Panic, she is uh, recommended by Kim. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, my name is Crystal Panic. I'm going to be talking about Bigfoot cryptids and the paranormal. Uh, I'm a field researcher for the BFRO for the state of New Hampshire. Um, funny story how I got into the BFRO. I don't know if you guys remember Finding Bigfoot. Uh, they were doing town hall meetings uh, all over the all over different states and things and um, my youngest daughter she's not here she had an encounter at our home in Farmington and I had an encounter as a child so when she had her encounter it made me go what is going on so now I need more answers so what what is she seeing so they were looking for people to um, do the town hall meeting and we contacted them and they had us go up to North Conway uh, and do the, do the town hall meeting and it finished really late and it was a snowstorm and um, Matt Moneymaker was there, I actually have a next slide with Moneymaker that, that day and I said to my daughter, wait, I have to go talk to him. So I turned around and walked back in and I said, you do not have any active researchers in the state of New Hampshire. How do I join? And he sat down and we, he interviewed me and we talked for like an hour and he said, welcome aboard. So that's how I, I did it. So I always say if, you, if there's something you're passionate about and you want to do it, just do it. You know. So uh, I am a member of Project Zoo Book. Tara. 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 Sorry, I knew I was going to do that. You're sure I saw Project Zoobook? That's exciting. So um, I actually just became a member of Project Zoobook last year. Uh, I'm an author. I write during my daytime job. I have uh, I write computer books for uh, Cybex for Wiley Publications. So that's what I do during the day. Paranormal investigator. Um, I always say I'm a knower. I had an encounter as a child, and that's what has really drawn me into this doing what I do today. And also, uh, I'm a contributing author for Squatch GQ magazine. So, and that was me with Bobo. So, next slide. Thank you. Uh, just a little bit about BFRO. It was founded in 1995 by Matt Moneymaker. This was the day I met him and became a member of the BFRO. Um, oldest and largest organization of its kind, virtual community. We actually have a big database, and I'm, I'm not sure how many people have been out to the BFRO.net. Um, you can submit sightings on that site, um, and what happens is it goes to a database. We can log in as investigators, look at the database, assign it to ourselves, and then uh, we'll reach out to people. Um, as I get further into the presentation, I'll show you some numbers for the state of New Hampshire. I handle the state of New Hampshire. Um, pretty much solely state of New Hampshire. Massachusetts has um, Squatchusetts. I don't know if anyone is familiar with Squatchusetts, but John Wilkes and his team, Dave McCullough, and, um, and I work also with, um, um, my mind is going blank. I knew this was gonna happen. Jeff Shepard, 
So Jeff Shepard also works with me. Um, so whenever there's uh, anything going on in New Hampshire, I usually, because I'm really the only active uh, investigator for the state of New Hampshire, I don't like to go to locations by myself. So I'll call one of the guys from Massachusetts to come up and, and go with me. But this is a, about the BFRO. A little bit of history about um, Bigfoot. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Bob Gimlin. So I had the opportunity to meet him several times. <coughs> um, he was part of the Patterson-Gimlin film, and I do have a stabilized version, which I'll show you guys too as well. But um, this is just a little bit about the brief history and, and when the terms came about. So you can do the next one. This is the stabilized version that um, my mind is always going blank today. Um, MK Davis, he put this one together and stabilized it. So I actually had the opportunity during the 50th anniversary to, to go to Willow Creek and we went to the film site and looked around. It doesn't look anything like this nowadays. There's a, a group out there that <coughs> plotted the trees like they could find like certain stumps and they were able to actually find the exact location of, of where it is. Uh, the Bluff Creek Project is what they're called. So, but I don't know how many of you have ever seen this, but I love the stabilized version. And I went to a presentation once with uh, Dr. Meldrum. I don't know if anyone's familiar with Dr. Meldrum. He's an anthropologist and he studies footprint casts specifically. And he did a presentation where you can actually, if, if you can zoom in, you see her, her foot flex. So, and you can see the sand, the sand stuck on the bottom of her feet as she walks. How do you tell a female from a male? Thank you. Size-wise? This one actually, this is, if you can zoom in on her, she actually has breasts. Oh, okay. So this is Patty, and this is actually her cast, a copy of her awesome. footprint. Awesome. That was taken the day that this was shot. Awesome. So if you guys want to take a look at this later, you're more than welcome. So this was cast October 20th, 1967. This is just a replica of that cast, mm -hmm. but I actually was carrying some of these back from a conference, and um, a friend of mine was with me, and we were going through security, and they were looking at them, and they were like, what the heck? <laughs> and my friend is like, they're fake, break them. And I was like, oh my gosh, don't you dare. <laughs> they let me through. But I carried those on the plane. I was not letting those go in my baggage. <laughs> okay, next slide, please. Okay, um, is anyone familiar, really familiar with Bigfoot? Or, or I know you are. Okay, good. So we have believers. Do we have knowers? No knowers in house? But anyway, this is some audio evidence that's been picked up over the years. I hope the speakers are loud enough. This is the Ohio Howell recorded. No, actually, um, Moneymaker caught this, this audio. And that's why he does what he does now, because this was some of the audio he collected. I love that audio. 
I'm going to play one actually from New Hampshire, and I wish I knew who filmed it, who recorded it, because I love it. But the next one is, is Whoops and Knox, 1974, that were captured by Ron Moorhead and Al Barry. Samurai chap Chatter, also captured by Ron Moorhead and other. fascinates me. I, I love that. Um, I actually did a, uh, a podcast once with Ron Moorhead and I felt like I was in the room with like the idol, the, you know, the person who captured this really good audio. It was amazing. And I just hope one day I can get audio that good. Well, we hope you enjoyed Spirit Quest 2023 Beyond the Veil. And us back together again. Yay. At least for a little while. We'll see. We'll see if we can drag Van Helsing down to uh, the Bridge studio Club, yeah. and get him back in front of the camera. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. See what the future brings. So we want to thank you for listening and watching. Uh, and until uh, next time, good night. Good night. From goalies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good Lord.